There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. Look, you know Donald Trump. Is it plausible Trump was showing classified documents to people in private meetings? The short answer is yes. I watched him show uh, documents to people at Mar-a-Lago on the, at the dining room patio. So he has no respect for classified information, never did. Former staff like Stephanie Grisham say he did it. Trump himself is heard on tape bragging about it. Now a former CIA director is speaking out about the danger Trump posed to national security with his misuse of classified documents. Also tonight, we're learning about more rich billionaires that Justice Clarence Thomas has been palling around with, what he received from them and what he reportedly gave in return. And George Santos, who still hasn't been removed from Congress, is comparing himself to Rosa Parks, yet another example of Republicans misusing civil rights icons. As the Republican in charge of Oklahoma schools says the Tulsa race massacre wasn't about race at all. I wish I were making that up. But we begin tonight with a twice indicted ex-president who poses a national security risk unlike any this country has ever faced. And don't just take it from me. Here's a warning from Michael Hayden, the former director of both the Central Intelligence Agency and National Security Agency, who served under Presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. The president is supposed to keep our secrets secure, not show our secrets off. He had many top secret documents at Mar-a-Lago for more than a year. We don't know who saw them, but we have to assume those documents were compromised. Trump must face consequences for his actions. The former CIA director suffers from aphasia as a result of a stroke, making it difficult for him to speak. But due to the gravity of Trump's alleged crimes and the danger Trump poses to our national security, Hayden chose to speak out anyway. He isn't the only four-star general speaking out against Trump these days. The New York Times reports that John Kelly, who served as Trump's White House chief of staff, said in a sworn statement that when he was in the White House, Trump discussed having the IRS and other federal agencies investigate his perceived enemies. The people he targeted were Peter Strzok, who you've seen on MSNBC and on this show, and Lisa Page, two FBI officials who were involved in investigating the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. Strzok was the lead agent in the FBI's investigation. Page was a former lawyer in the Bureau. They were both removed from then-Special Counsel Robert Mueller's probe after text messages critical of Trump became public. The two officials, who Trump viciously attacked while in office, filed lawsuits against the Justice Department. Page's lawsuit alleges privacy violations, while Strzok argues that he was wrongfully terminated. John Kelly's assertions were disclosed in a statement that was filed in connection with those lawsuits. 
In a statement, he said, Trump questioned whether investigations by the Internal Revenue Service or other federal agencies should be undertaken into Mr. Strzok and or Ms. Page. I do not know of Trump ordering such an investigation, Kelly says. It appeared, however, that he wanted to see Strzok and Page investigated. The damning statement comes as Trump faces an unprecedented level of legal trouble, as more Trump White House officials disclose just how routine it was for the former president to put government secrets on display. It's a pattern that we've seen since at least 2017, when Trump revealed intelligence secrets to Kremlin officials that he welcomed inside the Oval Office, from loose lips to tweeting classified images to now flaunting his precious boxes filled with classified material as if they were prizes. The danger has never been so clear. America's very safety has been and may still be at the mercy of one man's ego. And the fact that he could still become president, it's a truly terrifying thought. Joining me now is Nick Ackerman, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and former Watergate prosecutor, and Javed Ali, a former senior director at the National Security Council. Thank you both. Nick, I want to go to you first because you have the most direct experience with a president who wanted to use the IRS to target his political enemies. Talk about this uh, in relation to the old Nixon style um, and what level of danger you think Trump posed related, I mean, sort of, you know, related or or sort of uh, contrasted to Nixon. Oh, there's no question that Donald Trump was pulling a full Richard Nixon here in ordering and directing um, Mr. Kelly to have the IRS um, audit various people. Uh, This is precisely what Richard Nixon did. He compiled an enemies list that included people like Larry O'Brien, who was the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, uh, and had the IRS audit him. Uh, directed the IRS to audit him. Larry O'Brien was also the subject of what occurred at the break-in at the Watergate complex. They were looking for information on Larry O'Brien. So once you made it onto Nixon's enemies list, Richard Nixon stopped at nothing to uncover whatever he could and to create whatever damage he could on those people. Donald Trump has done exactly the same thing. Now, we don't know about what happened in terms of the audits of Page and Strzok. But we do know that two top FBI officials, the director, uh, James Comey, uh, and his deputy, um, McCabe, were both audited. Now, the odds of those two people being audited out of all the people, the few people that were ever audited by the IRS during that period of time is almost impossible. I know that there was an investigation that was supposedly done by the inspector general for the IRS that was presented to the House Committee um, on on the finances and tax uh, and claimed that they could not find any such evidence. But the fact remains, unlike what we did in Watergate, where we put people into the grand jury and followed the trail from Nixon right up into the IRS and could show exactly what happened, that wasn't done here. There was no Department of Justice investigation of Donald Trump on what was clearly criminal activity. Um, I think the problem is Donald Trump committed so many crimes that (laughs) the Department of Justice just doesn't have the time and ability to go after every single one of these. But certainly, I think if they dug into the McComey-Cabe audits, 
they would find out that this was just the same thing that happened to Larry O'Brien 50 years ago. Right. And uh, to, to bring you in, Javed Ali, I mean, you know, Peter Strzok, Ms. Page, James Comey and, and, and McCabe, what they all have in common, and to, we should note, Strzok and McCabe were not audited. This was just conversations that the chief of staff at the time uh, was privy to. What these four people have in common is that they were all involved in some way in probing Donald Trump's ties to Russia. And we know Trump was obsessed with that and remained obsessed with it. There's some thinking that trying to sort of pay back and prove his innocence and pay back those who were uncovering those ties was some of his motivation when he was president of doing things and naming people as enemies. What do you make of the fact that this was one of the things that he wanted to do? Joy, great to be with you again. And it would suggest that um, President Trump was trying to use the IRS as some kind of political tool to advance these personal agendas, even though he and other folks on his staff were coming under investigation for those uh, suspected or alleged ties to Russia. Now, we also know there are problems with the Crossfire Hurricane investigation as well, and the FBI has taken steps to, to address that. But yeah, this, this is just another example of that attitude uh, that President Trump apparently had while he was in office, that to use these different tools of government, not to advance the country's national security interests, but again, to to align with his personal interests and to, to go after people he thought were uh, somehow uh, trying to undermine him personally. And I will note that the investigation that was done by Robert Mueller, 33 some odd people were indicted. Donald Trump's ties to Russia, his campaign was being solicited uh, by the Russians who did want to help him. And I think it was very definitively found in the Mueller report that they wanted him to win and were trying to help him. So, right. And, and that obviously freaked him out. And he was very disturbed that that information was coming out. But let me go to the second piece of this. And I'll start with you, Javed Ali. You have Donald Trump while he's president, disclosing classified information about a planned ISIL operation um, when he's in the Oval Office with Sergei Lavrov and Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. Lavrov and Kislyak essentially might as well be Russian spies. These are Kremlin officials. He told Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte that the U.S. had positioned two nuclear submarines off the course of North Korea. That's classified information. He confiscated his interpreter's notes at his meeting with Putin. So no one knows what was said there. He posted video on Twitter of several members of SEAL Team 5 revealing their location and their unblurred faces. That's 2018. A year later, he tweets a classified surveillance image of damage to an Iranian spaceport, revealing highly classified U.S. surveillance capabilities. And then in 2021, he showed and described classified documents about U.S. military plans to attack Iran. He also may have shown aides and visitors a map of sensitive intelligence. This is not a man, Javed Ali, that cares about our national security. He seems to be using our national secrets to aggrandize himself. How dangerous is having someone like that anywhere near the Oval Office, let alone able to declassify things if he wants? Well, that's certainly, yeah, that's certainly a, a pattern of troubling activity. And I, as you mentioned uh, earlier when you introduced me, I was on the Trump National Security Council from 2017 to 2018, ironically, in detail from the FBI uh, as well. But when I when I was on staff, we never heard of these types of mishandlings or allegations. So they must have happened, you know, very closely within the confines of the Oval Office. And every day, at least on the National Security Council, we were dealing with the most sensitive documents you, one could imagine uh, going sometimes all the way up to the president. But once they left our control at the staff level and got 
uh, to the national security advisor and then up through the, the president. There was nothing that we could do to control who would uh, provide some type of unauthorized disclosure disclosure to whom. And unfortunately, it seems like that was a pattern of activity while President Trump was in the White House. And then now we know uh, what happened in the aftermath with all the documents that came back to Mar-a-Lago. So this just seems to be a pattern of behavior here. And part of it may have been that President Trump was not someone who was part of that Washington foreign policy or national security establishment, wasn't indoctrinated into these sensitivities about handling intelligence, certainly like people like myself as intelligence professionals were. And then you mix it in with all the other personal attributes. And unfortunately, something like this happened. Neither were Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, or even George W. Bush, even though he was the son of a president, and none of them did it. Uh, so I think maybe he just didn't care. I mean, that's my, my person. I mean, you know, you, you, you compare him to those others. They didn't do it. Um, let me talk to you really quickly, uh, Nick Ackerman, about the other guy that was involved in this, who was moving the boxes, Waltine Nada. He's now tried to delay his trial again. Um, the next conference was scheduled for July 14th, but he wants to push it back because his attorney um, is on, one of his attorneys is in D.C. doing another case. And also his other lawyer, they're claiming Sasha Dadden has not been adequately briefed on the case. It sounds to me like something that Trump might want, right, to push this trial back. Oh, of course. I mean, that's what he's going to yeah. try and do every step of the way. Now, I, I don't know what the judge is going to do about this. This is kind of an odd one where an attorney has another engagement. But I think in this circumstance, she may just order this attorney to show up or to have somebody else uh, from her office show up. I mean, there's no excuse for this. This this case has got to take precedence over every other case. It's a criminal case. Criminal cases in the federal system always take precedence. Um, if this is some matter that's a civil case in District of Columbia, that is nonsense. I mean, there's no way that this should be permitted. Uh, this date has been on the calendar now for a couple of weeks. When the attorney came into the case, she knew full well that this was a date that was there and was in stone. Um, I just don't think it's going to work. Um, he's going to try a lot of other stunts. Um, and this is probably the first of many that we're going to see. Nick Ackerman uh, and Javed Ali, thank you both very much for helping us uh, make sense of this stuff. Thank you. Up next on The Readout, new reporting raises more concerns about the ethical behavior of conservative justices on the Supreme Court. What are they handing over in exchange for all this VIP treatment? The Readout continues after this. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too. Because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Rapatha.com or call 1-844-RAPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Rapatha. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. 
And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I prefer the RV parks. I prefer the Walmart parking lots to the beaches and things like that. There's something normal to me about it. I've come from regular stock, and I prefer that. I prefer being around that. You can have that clip of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas trying to convince you he's just an ordinary Joe to the seemingly endless list of benefits he's received, funded by his wealthy pals, some of them actually paid for that documentary. As the New York Times reports, in this case, these rich buddies are fellow members of an exclusive club, the Horatio Alger Society, who's to- who, where Thomas has received benefits, many of them previously unreported, from a broader cohort of wealthy and powerful friends. The Times notes he has granted the association unusual access to the Supreme Court, where every year he presides over the group's signature event, a ceremony in the courtroom at which he places Horatio Alger medals around the necks of lifetime members. One entrepreneur called it the closest thing to being knighted in the United States. Among the rich and powerful he's hobnobbed with through his membership, business executive David Sokol, who was among the funders of that pro-Thomas documentary, along with billionaire Harland Crowe who ProPublica revealed as the benefactor behind luxury trips and real estate deals, including the purchase of Thomas's mother's home and school tuition payments for his nephew that Justice Thomas accepted but failed to disclose. Thomas's relationship with the Horatio Alger Society has gotten him invitations to luxury vacation retreats and VIP access to sporting events, while the group has used its access through Thomas to raise money for scholarships. Two of those scholarships, named after Thomas's son, were awarded at Virginia prep schools. One overlapped with the attendance of a young man whom Justice Thomas mentored. The other was awarded while Justice Thomas's grandnephews were attending. One of them, anyway. Clarence Thomas didn't respond to questions from the Times, but the report notes his interest in living the good life was documented even before his membership in this elite club. After befriending Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones in the 1980s, the Legal Times reported he says he plans to be rich, says that means more than just a few hundred thousand dollars a year. Joining me now is Abby Van Sickle, one of the reporters on that New York Times story I just quoted, and Adam Serwer, staff writer for The Atlantic. Thank you both for being here. And Ms. Van Sickle, uh, let's dig into this more because, you know, one of the things that I noted in your piece is just how impressed and, um, you know, sort of the grandeur of being in that room, how much that meant to the people who got to be there. Is it normal for members of the Supreme Court to invite people to do fundraisers and to um, sort of enshrine themselves, ensconce themselves in that venue for purposes that are not legal or not related to the law, I should say. 
Yeah. So, so we, what we know is um, basically what we reported, which is that it's very unusual for groups to get access to the Supreme Court's courtroom itself. That's a hollowed space, you know, in, in American jurisprudence. It's where some of the biggest decisions are made and that this group has been able for years to get access to the courtroom itself to hold this induction ceremony. And this induction ceremony, is this this is where new members are brought in. Um, are there members that have been brought in or who've been associated with those events who've then turned around and had cases before the court? You know, we did an examination. Uh, one of our researchers uh, put together a list of, you know, the, the top people in this organization and they have uh, companies from healthcare companies um, to industries. They're, you know, very, very wealthy and connected people, many of them conservatives and uh, Republican donors. And so, you know, that's as much as we can say really right now is that that's a really common theme in this organization. And I played a little clip of that documentary, a very pro Clarence Thomas documentary that was produced. And my understanding is it was produced in response to continued reporting about his confirmation hearing, um, where, of course, he was credibly accused of sexual harassment. Is that accurate? We did see that there is um, a there is a section of a book that was produced along with this documentary where uh, there's you know an explicit connection between the 2016 HBO uh, movie that came out and a decision to create something in response, giving Clarence Thomas's views, um, giving him in his own words. And that this documentary, you know, if you watch it at the end in the credits, it lists people who are his friends from the Horatio Alger Association, along with Mr. Crow. Right. The people who, who pay for it. Um, Adam, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Republicans were outraged and claimed that the Clintons were selling the Lincoln bedroom and allowing donors to come over and experience the White House. Uh, and then they turned around and donated. This seems to me to be a sale, in a sense, of the court, trading access to the court to be in that hallowed space, as Ms. Vensicle has described it. Um, and then those people turn around and get their way on the court, and then they take him out to fancy events. It definitely sounds like corruption to me. How do you read it? Well, Thomas was already very conservative when he was appointed to the court. Um, so I think, you know, it's hard to say where his... Uh, ideology begins and, you know, whatever outside influence might begin. But it's also the case that you're not supposed to be able to, you know, profit off of your elevated position. So even if, you know, there's no, there's no evidence or there's no, uh, you know, we never find out anything that indicates, you know, sort of an explicit, I'm going to do this and you're going to rule for me on this issue. What you have is the longstanding financial and social relationship that puts pressure on a person in a position of incredible power, um, you know, to rule in a way that does not make his friends upset. Um, and especially when those people are contributing to the lifestyle that you cannot afford on your own. Um, it's just an unusual relationship. I think it is not you know, necessarily corruption in a legal sense, but it is the kind of relationship that is corrupting in the sense that, you know, you have a, 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 a very tight social and financial ties um, you know, to people who have business before the court.
Well, and, and, I, and I think that's fair. And that is a very fair way to look at it. I mean, th but this association, um, Adam, has given Clarence Thomas access to people who, let's just be honest, would probably not be publicly really associated with him um, in real life. You know, people like Buzz Aldrin, um, you know, Oprah Winfrey, who I, I don't know that was much of a booster. I mean, Maya Angelou did support him getting on the court, but Fred Trump is a member. Justice Thurgood Marshall was a member. Um, Mike Bloomberg, Elizabeth Holmes, actors, um, Roger Ailes. I mean, he's getting these associations. And he is somebody who his biographers all kind of agree has this kind of anger that he wasn't able to become a rich lawyer. He's now essentially traded this hallowed position, one of nine members of the Supreme Court, for access, for access to wealth, access to privilege, access to money. And it doesn't surprise me that he wants to make those people happy and that his rulings do make them happy. Well, you know, as the saying goes, it's a small club and you ain't in it. But uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't think we know for sure what the nature. You know, what I'm saying to, to to what extent. Sorry, to what extent. You know, this has affected. You know, anything, any decisions he's actually made before the court. But it's certainly the case that he has been given access to to a certain kind of lifestyle from people uh, that he would not be able to afford on his own. Uh, and, you know, that is a questionable thing to do, even if no one has ever, you know, slipped you an envelope full of money or anything that explicit. There, there also, Adam, is a, now a really big push um, that Congress has to stop this, have put an end to the, at least this, the perception that the court is thoroughly corrupt. Congress has called, been called to investigate. You've got a, a group of 90 progressive organizations that have now joined together called United for Democracy, calling for an investigation. Um, but the reaction of people like Harlan Crow and even Chief Justice Roberts, the sort of contempt they've had for the suggestion that they ought to be investigated, their refusal to testify, to me, that is also damning. Um, you know, Harlan Crow claims they have not identified a valid legislative purpose for an investigation. Justice Thomas had said, you can't investigate us. They, if they're not corrupt, their behavior certainly suggests that they may be corrupt-ish <laughs> because they don't seem to be interested. You know, if they're, if they're doing nothing wrong, I can't understand why they wouldn't be open to a full look. Well, I think quite apart from the question of corruption, uh, you know, Congress is one of the three branches of government. It is allowed to uh, look at the Supreme Court and say, hey, we want to make sure that you are doing your job properly. Um, and Harlan Crow is not a branch of the Supreme Court. Uh, so I think it's actually very strange for someone to say to thumb his nose at Congress in that way. John Roberts, you know, his argument is that it is precisely the separation of powers that prevents him from uh, coming to Congress and answering questions in this way. I think that's questionable, but but at least it's there's a sort of logic behind it. Uh, Harlan Crow saying, I'm going to spend all this money in, a, in advance of my political interests, and then I'm going to ignore Congress uh, when they invite me to testify. I think that's actually a, a much stranger. Yeah, and I think the American people don't want to feel as if we live in a pure oligarchy where these the, the elite sort of, you know, pay to play and hang out and they get their way on the court, like, almost all the time. It definitely doesn't look or smell right. Uh, Abby Van Sickle, Adam Serwer, thank you both very much. And coming up, Twitter challenger threads stakes out space in the social media world as a less confrontational, less shouty place to build and maintain your social networks. But can that last? We'll be right back.
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Twitter might be on the slow road to obscurity as Mark Zuckerberg's rival app Threads has surpassed 100 million users in only five days. Meanwhile, Twitter users are mostly left with a ranting and raving Elon Musk and lots and lots of racists. You have neo-Nazi Richard Spencer allowed to host Twitter spaces and polls like this anti-Semitic one asking if Jews control the world and are waging war on white Western society. Um, those are being allowed to stay up. Horrifyingly, half of the people who engaged with this tweet answered yes. To that question. It's just one example of Twitter failing to regulate hate speech from their dues-paying blue checks, who are also spreading misinformation, with a new report showing that blue checks are fueling disinformation about the Ukraine war. Joining me now is Ben Collins, NBC News senior reporter, uh, and my, my, my doom-scrolling reporter. We just, we just say your report on doom, pretty much, uh, but I love seeing you anyway, my friend. Um, it does feel like, I, okay, I'm just going to give you myself as an example. I'm somebody who I stopped using Twitter quite a long time ago. I don't tweet. I don't want to give Elon any content. But every so often, I would check it just as an aggregator, just to see if there's any news in there in between the Nazi tweets. After a while, I stopped doing that because it's like, I don't want to have to read through Nazi crap just to see what's in the news. Threads, since that has launched, there's to me, there's no reason to check Twitter anymore. All of the major, you know, Mattel blogs on there, the Washington Post is on there. All of the stuff I would normally read, I can aggregate it on threads. Twitter now is useless to me. If people like me are leaving, I don't know how Twitter survives. Yeah, I don't really. I mean, it will survive in the sense that um, the Nazis still really like it. Enjoy. I think it really it. does show off. Yeah, they really do. Um, it, it shows off that this place has become an artificially uh, induced hellscape um, that the news sort of still had to participate in. Right. The incentive structure on Twitter didn't wasn't the best content or even the most interesting content or even. You know, back in the old days, the worst thing it could be was the most salacious content. Now right. it's just a guy paid eight bucks to someone who is widely loathed, uh, in part because they support the guy or because they want to clout chase. So the stuff that you see on Twitter is inherently uh, kind of nuts. It's kind of nuts. Uh, on threads, that's just not the case. It's people who are feeling out the platform, trying to see if they can sort of plant their flag trying to remind people that they're around. It's like the first week in a new neighborhood, maybe. That's sort of what it feels like right now. So it's 103 million people as we speak right now on threads. And yeah. when Twitter bought, I was sorry, when Twitter was bought by Elon, it was 360 million people. Um, that's after about, you know, over a dozen years in existence. And that's only went down, that's only gone down since then. So uh, we're going to deal with a bifurcated, very uh, separate and balkanized internet now, uh, where the happier place appears to be threads. 
Right. And I mean, look, I mean, one of the last sort of left holdouts was, you know, black Twitter was still there and it was still worth re- uh, engaging with. That's on spill now. I ain't going to spill and get that. I, I don't have to even. So there's not even a reason to get that on there. And then as far as like news, yes, the people at Threads have said this is not a place for news. Oh, that's what they said. That ain't how it's working out. I'm still seeing news that is now breaking that I can see over there. I, I'm going to point to your tweet that we just saw while we were on the show that uh, the supposed uh, whistleblower that was going to get Joe Biden who was indicted in February for trading uh, arms uh, basically illicitly uh, for the Chinese government, has now been indicted. I saw that on your feed on threads during the commercial break. So it's like I, I can now find out things with, you know, and, and I mean, to me, you know, The Guardian wrote about this, that the thing, the two things that were holding people onto Twitter was the communities that they built. Right. And the fact that they didn't want to leave those communities and the fact that you could get information in real time. Well, if you can get the information in real time and also threads brings your community in, I feel like Twitter becomes not important. But let's talk about Zuckerberg for a minute, because a lot of people are uncomfortable with him getting this much power. Let's just put up the top things that are used for social media. Facebook is still number one, believe it or not. Your grannies are really on there. Instagram, 2.3 billion people. TikTok, 1.6 billion people. Twitter was at 370 million and dropping. Snapchat, 370. Threads is only at 100 million so far, but those were per month. Is there a concern out there that maybe Zuckerberg winds up getting too much power? Yeah. Joy, we're not in a good position here. Like, we are (laughs) in this weird space where we just float around from one weird rich guy's platform to the next. Uh, Elon, however, he got red-pilled. The guy is an internet 4chan dude now, and he is making his platform considerably worse. And when you go on there, you are confronted with videos of people getting murdered, at the very least, or people replying to you that you didn't even know existed and you really don't want to. And maybe they don't, <laughs> because there's really no bot-checking anymore. So you, I don't love this. This is the reality that we're in right now. But um, everyone is sort of planting their flag all throughout the Internet because we're in a new era. Um, This is like the great reset of social media, where everyone is going to find these new spots and figure out which ones they like best and why they posted this one and not that one. Maybe you post a spill. Maybe you post a blue sky for this sort of thing. Maybe that sandwich that you liked isn't meant for Twitter anymore. (laughs) Maybe it's meant for somewhere else. But that's where we're all headed. The problem is now, of course, and this is sort of the issue that we have going forward. How do we determine which one of these is important politically, right? Um, How do we determine which user base has power politically and is, and is uh, driving people to the polls and is, is, uh, you know, why, why is Ron DeSantis spending his time at this place? And why is Joe Biden's team spending his time at this place? Right. That's going to be a new thing that we all have to learn. Problem is a little more closed off than it used to be. And that's in part uh, because it's Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Well, and the thing is, is that, you know, Twitter still is a, a dangerous place in terms of disinformation. We know there, there's lots of disinformation, you know, about Ukraine. There's a lots of Nazi stuff on there. But I wonder if it concentrates it so much that the right wingers get bored of talking to each other. Right. When Twitter is getter, they don't want to be on there. They want to be where the liberals are because they want to own the libs and they can only do that in places where normal people are. And I wonder if they start trying to infect and impact threads the same way and whether there are enough guardrails to keep them from coming over there. Because that's one thing I've noticed. They don't like talking to each other. They want to talk to normal people. And they can only do that if they break out of their closed platforms and get onto the ones where normal people are. Yeah, it's the ever-repeating story of the internet. Um, This is how it's always gone, by the way. People create these small enclaves where 
they find themselves to be safe, comfortable to have regular conversations with their friends. Uh, and then those places become cool or interesting. If people want in on those conversations, they want to become part of that community. They become bigger and bigger. And then eventually they become so big that um, some people with unpopular opinions start to think there's a conspiracy as to why they're getting <laughs> shut down. Sometimes, for example, they create these things called the Twitter files, where they launch GOP congressional investigations to find out why these things are happening. But it turns out maybe their opinions are just not something that people want to listen to. And it's not censorship. It's just, you know, the way it is. It's not us. It's you. Sorry, right wingers. Ben Collins, thank you. Still ahead. Iowa Republicans choose an odd day to hold their pre-election caucus as a judge in Oklahoma issues a heads we win, tails you lose ruling in the lawsuit seeking reparations for the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. We're back after this. Republicans suffer from delusions of grandeur or simply don't know anything about the history of civil rights and its icons in this country, but they are putting on quite a display of something that can't be described as anything other than ludicrous. You have the fabulous New York Congressman George Santos, a.k.a. Anthony DeValder, a.k.a. Kitara Rivash, now putting himself on the same level as a beloved civil rights icon. Mitt Romney, the man goes to the State of the Union of the United States wearing a Ukraine lapel pin, tells me, a Latino gay man, that I shouldn't sit in the front, that I should be in the back. Well, guess what? Rosa Parks didn't sit in the back, and neither am I going to sit in the back. Sorry, Congressman, who shouldn't be a congressman, but no, you are nothing like Rosa Parks. And then you have Iowa's Republican Party, which just announced that they will be holding their presidential caucus next year on January 15th, the same day as the federal holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It was a deliberate choice with the state's Republican chair making this claim. I think the fact that it is a federal holiday, and I think the fact that, uh, that it, as, as Republicans, we, can, uh, we see this as honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King. Yes, yes, I'm sure Dr. King would be so honored by the same Republican Party that passed a ban on a made-up version of critical race theory that would make it difficult to even teach students about Dr. King and his amazing legacy. And Iowa's not alone. According to Education Week, 18 Republican-led states have passed similar bans and restrictions that amount to nothing more than mandating, by law, the continual protection of conservative white Americans' feelings. Because if you taught the country's actual history on civil rights and racism, it could make the white people who weirdly identify with the bad guys from decades ago feel sad. To that, Oklahoma's Republican state superintendent, the person in charge of all of the state's public schools, said, hold my beer. In a public forum last week, Ryan Walters was asked how the state could teach about the 1921 Tulsa race massacre in which a white mob descended on the prosperous all-black neighborhood of Greenwood, known as Black Wall Street, destroying it and killing an estimated 300 black people, given the state's ban on teaching such concepts about race in public schools. I would say you be judgmental of the, of the issue, of the action, of the content of, of, of the character of the individual, absolutely. But let's not tie it to the skin color and say that the skin color determined that. Yes, you heard that right. Somehow the Tulsa race massacre had nothing to do with race at all. You cannot make this stuff up. And we'll talk about that in a crushing development in the lawsuit seeking reparations for the last known living victims of the Tulsa race massacre. Next. What does justice look like to you? Well, 
everything is beautiful and rebuilt and restored. And, you know, we just think it's just time now that we have justice on all of that to where we can live all our life, <clears throat> that type of life over again as a grown-up. For 109-year-old Viola Fletcher and the two other known survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, the wait for that justice will drag on. That's because an Oklahoma judge threw out their years-long legal efforts seeking reparations and rebuilding to address the historical damage done 102 years ago by the race massacre that destroyed Black Wall Street. Judge Caroline Wall sided with the state and city of Tulsa, who argued, in part, that being connected to a historical event doesn't give a person unlimited rights to seek compensation. And joining me now is Demario Solomon Simmons, civil rights attorney and founder of Justice for Greenwood. Demario, um, it is great to see you. I have to say, the argument that people have normally made against reparations is, well, the victims of enslavement or some other wrong are long dead. We can't compensate people who are alive because the victims are dead. But now you have a case where the victims are alive. There are three people who are alive and they're still saying we still can't have reparations. Make that make sense because it seems like a heads you lose, tails I win. Yeah, I mean, it's always a moving of the goalpost when it comes to black people and our racial justice claims. And you're right, Joy. 109 years old. Mother Fletcher was seven years old at the time. Mother Randall, 108. She was six years old at the time. They saw, they felt, they heard, and they witnessed and experienced the race massacre. They're still here. And that's the thing that this case is so important nationally because we have the photos, we have the video, we have the hundreds of insurance claims. We have living people who are saying this happened to me. And no one is disputing that this happened to them. Yet the city of Tulsa, the county, the chamber and the state are saying, we don't care that this happened to you. We're not going to do anything for you, your families or the community. Let me play what you said last time that you were here um, uh, on the show about the defendants in this case. We know that the defendants, their strategy was to have these beautiful individuals. They want them to die, point blank. They was hoping that during this delay that they wouldn't be here any further longer. But they both told me they're going to be here for the long haul. And, and I mean, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like they want to go back to the original argument saying there are no living victims. Absolutely. And that's why Justice for Greenwood, an organization that's fighting on behalf of these, these survivors and descendants, that's why we've had a holistic plan, because we know that the city and the state, they just want these people to be dead so then they can continue to utilize the massacre to raise more money for themselves. Joy, as you know, the city used the massacre and, 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 and everything to raise over $30 million for their own benefit to create a tourism attraction. Yet they don't want to give one penny, one dime to any of the survivors or the descendants. And that's why this decision to dismiss us is so hurtful. It is so unbelievable, because as you know, Joy, last year, the same judge said we can move forward. But it's not over. We're going to appeal this case to the Oklahoma Supreme Court. We know that's a conservative venue, but the law is so clear here. If they would just do the rule of law. And again, we know how that is when it comes to black people. But if they just follow the yeah. law, we will actually be successful to get back into court. In the meanwhile, we're calling on the federal government, Joe, President Joe Biden, our dear sister, Christian Clark of Department of Justice, to come in and open a, a criminal investigation that's never happened in Greenwood. They can do this today. Right now, today, they have the authority to do that. And we ask them to do it. Because we know U.S. military um, planes were used as well. Um, I, I, you know, Jonathan, who produced this segment, um, he went looking for the ruling by Judge Caroline Wall and at first thought he didn't find it because he just found this three sentence, you know, upon hearing the arguments of counsel, this case is dismissed with prejudice. That's the ruling. 
She didn't even explain her ruling. She just wrote three quick lines and get out of my courtroom. To me, that seems like an insult, particularly, as you said, since the city of Tulsa has used these people and their tragedy to earn money off of them. It is an insult. And Joy, when I found out, I found out about this by a reporter calling me late uh, Friday evening and it was a gut punch. And then I felt so bad for myself, but then feeling bad to have to call my clients and tell them what happened. And when they asked me, well, what, what's the reasoning? And I have to tell them, I don't know. The judge didn't even give us the decency to explain it to us in a written order and outside of just putting this in on Friday night. So it's something that it just should not have happened. The standard that we were having, the bar was so low on a motion to dismiss in this type of situation. And for us not to have any type of a reasoning, it leaves you, the only, only thing you can think of is this is another chapter in a 102 year ver, uh, book where they continue to say no. They continue to find ways to say no, regardless of when you bring the claim, how you bring the claim or who brings the claim. But that's why we're going to still continue to fight. We're going to appeal this case. We're going to look at other avenues to get these people justice and the entire black community from Greenwood, because this is a case that impacts all of black America's racial justice claims. As you stated, Joy, we have living survivors. We have video. We have pictures. We have millions of dollars in insurance claims, and they're still going to say no. This cannot stand in America. And I ask everyone that believes in truth, justice and reparations for these survivors and black folks to join with us at Justice for Greenwood, justiceforgreenwood.org. Get with us, stand with us, and let these three survivors know that they have a nation of people that's not just praying for them, but it's actively in the fight for justice for them. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, please pass along uh, to uh, Uncle Red and to Mother Fletcher uh, and to the other wonderful survivor. Uh, we will stay on this case, Demario Solomon Simmons. We're going to invite you back whenever there are any elements or any uh, developments in your lawsuit, your ongoing action to try to get justice for these people. $30 million, they pimped their tragedy for money. And I think that Tulsa needs to step up and do the right thing. And we we're, we're going to stay with it until they do. Thank you. That's tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.